0: Morning, Morning. man. Thank you, uh, Ethan. Really, Um, it's one thing that I don't like about myself is that I'm a crier, and so as I was listening to my brother, I'm like, man, my heart is just so tender right now, and I'm like about to ball over here, And, and and the reason being is because it's almost as if he reached under this podium and grabbed my paper copy of my sermon, and read it this morning, and then did all of his music based on that. That's exactly how I feel. Um, Thank you, brother. Thank you for your obedience. Thank you for um, doing what God has called you to do. Um, Well, good morning, everybody. Here we go again. So I was trying to think of different titles and So there's so many different titles that I could have came up with for this message. I'm coming from Romans chapter one verse 16 and 17, and all of you probably know that verse. Romans chapter one verse 16 and 17. Um, So the the title that I came up with is the gospel that saves you also keeps you. But before that, my title was unashamed. Then it was unashamed of the gospel. Then it was the power of the gospel. But then finally, I believe that the Lord pressed it upon my heart that the gospel that saved you is also the gospel that keeps you. Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to stand before your people once again. Father, I pray that you would move me out of the way, Lord God, and that you would be seen, that your glory would be seen, that you would be proclaimed, that your message would be heard, that it would be received, Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that this gospel message will hit the target of that heart that is hardened by sin. And Lord, would you turn that heart around this morning, Lord Jesus. And for the Christian, I offer a message of hope this morning. And Father, I pray that that message would be received in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I sought the Lord about what the message would be, I began to ask myself, okay, Roman, what are you dealing with? And usually I kind of start there and say, if it's good enough for me, it's good enough for everybody else, right? Normally, if I'm going through something, somebody else is probably going through the same thing. We are very different, but at the same time, our human experience is very much alike in many ways. And as I thought about that, the resounding message that kept coming back was, you're dealing with sin, You're dealing with sin like everybody else. Everybody in this entire auditorium, everybody in this entire world, Christian or non-Christian, is dealing with the problem of sin in their lives. Sin, by the way, can be described as any transgression of God's law. So what does it mean to transgress? To transgress is to cross a line or a boundary And I think we're all aware that everybody is habitual line steppers that are in this room. We have a habit of stepping across God's line, across God's word, across the boundaries that God has put in place. The Bible, which is God's word, is the rule or measure by which all our thoughts And actions are judged. God's law is the proverbial line in the sand, if you will. And when we willfully cross that line, in defiance of God's law, we have committed sin. The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. Prisons have guard towers for a reason. I was listening to one of my friends... He was telling me a story about a time when he was in trouble and he was sitting in court. And there was another man that was in court that was in trouble. And so the judge is getting ready to sentence this guy. And as the guy stands before the judge, this is a true story. As the guy stands before the judge, I think the judge gave him something like 30 or 40 years or something crazy like that. Just a really big number because he did something really bad. And so the criminal turns to the judge and goes, your honor. Knees shaking, I'm sure, after hearing he's about to get 40 years. And he says, I can't do 40 years in prison, Your Honor. To which the judge turns back to him and says, well, do what you can. (laughs) (laughs) It's cold, but it's true. Uh, But the next part of of what I'm going to say is hypothetical. Let's say this same man my friend told me about decides after a couple of days in prison... That he's done all the time that he's able to do. So he attempts to escape. The moment he crosses the boundaries created by the prison, let's call that boundary the gun line. Tell him about the gun line, boss. I'm going to tell you about the gun line. So when he crosses the gun line, the tower guard has the right to shoot, to kill. Well, in this analogy, we're the criminals. God's law is the tower guard. And we all run across the gun line every day. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I thought about my own struggles with sin, I began to look for scriptures that could aid me in fighting my battle against sin in my life. And what I kept finding were scriptures that made me feel even worse about my ability to obey God's commands. Why? Because scripture doesn't discriminate. If you're a gossiper, you're no less of a sinner than a thief. If you're a liar, you are no less a sinner than a homosexual. Now, the consequences for certain sins may have a greater penalty But God says that all sin deserves a death sentence. And this is man's great dilemma. The Bible reveals to us that all sin is deserving of a death sentence and all of us commit a multitude of sins daily, many of which we aren't even aware of. Now, you may be tempted right now to say, well, you know, my little sins aren't really deserving of a death sentence. Well... You'd be wrong. We are not all equally sinful, but we have all equally failed to meet God's standard. I'm going to say that again. We're not all equally sinful, but we've all failed to meet God's standard. Now, some people's sin is very brash. You have people that could care less what you think about what they do. And they flaunt their sin, and they go out, and they do all of the things that we see on the news and otherwise, and we oh, we point our finger at them, Right? But for us as believers, as we walk with the Lord a little while, we may have escaped doing those grand sins, but we still have these other sins that are called refined sins, right? And these refined sins are the ones like gossiping, right? Like like backbiting, like telling a little white lie, like overeating, like all of these little things that we allow to just go under the radar undetected as Christians because they're not as bad of sins right but imagine this if all of us in this room were taking a test and the passing grade for the test was 60 percent and you got a 58 percent and I got a 50 percent we both failed right right yeah you might have come closer to getting the passing grade than I did But at the end of the day, you still passed the test because you still failed the test because you didn't meet the mark or the standard that was put in place. So why would we spend our time arguing about who came closer to failure? That's a losing argument. While pondering this, I was reminded of a story in one of the many books that have impacted my Christian life over the years, the book is called The Discipline of Grace by author Jerry Bridges. Um, he's since gone on to be with the Lord. Um, but Bridges, in his book, asks the reader to picture themselves in two different scenarios. So I'm asking you this morning to put yourself in each of these scenarios. Now, this is also directed at Christians. This is directed at those who have received the gospel, what I'm saying right now. So this is a story, two stories about a Christian. So the first story is a good day. So the Christian, alarm goes off. He gets up in the morning. He's refreshed. He feels good. He's energized. He's excited to go to work. He's excited to do the things that are before him. He spends some time that morning getting on his knees in prayer. He spends some quiet time with the Lord. He's all loving with the kids and all of that, caresses the dog on the way out the door, right? And he just has this general sense that God is with him, that God is moving in his life. He just, he just has this sense on this good day that things are going to go his way and that God loves him and that God cares for him. So later that evening, this man on his good day has an opportunity to witness to somebody who is really hungry For the gospel, somebody that really wants to know the message, not somebody just asking a question about it, but he gets an opportunity to witness to someone with a heart that's right to receive the gospel. Now we have the second Christian. We'll call him the bad day Christian. This Christian's alarm goes off and he wakes up mad. He hits the alarm and he goes back to sleep. He hit the snooze because he's not ready to get up. Because first of all, they don't appreciate me at that job. And second of all, I don't make enough money and all of that, right? So he's having a bad day as soon as the alarm goes off. And he carries that energy with him throughout the rest of his day. He's so mad. He's late. He's behind. He's moving. And he's going, you know what? I don't have time for quiet time this morning. Stubs his toe on the edge of the bed. Ah! Kicks the dog on the way out the door and screams at his wife, right? He... This guy's having a bad day. And all during that day, he just has this general sense of things are not good. Things are not going my way. God is not pleased with me because I did not do the things or live in a way, Father, that's pleasing to you today. But that same man on his bad day, God presents him with an opportunity to witness. A same, the same thing, a man comes and says, hey, man, I've really been questioning this Christian thing, this salvation thing, and can you tell me more about that? Now, in these two stories, who do you believe will be most effective in witnessing? The Christian on his good day or the Christian on his bad day? Well, our natural tendency is to go the Christian who's having a good day, right? Because that's how our minds usually work. And this story the author has shared with multiple people over the years. And usually he got the same response that most people would go, you know what? God would use me on my good day. So the author says, I've asked people why they think God would probably not use them to share the gospel with someone on a bad day. A typical reply is, I wouldn't be worthy or I wouldn't be worthy good enough. Such a reply reveals an all-too-common misconception of the Christian life, the thinking that although we are saved by grace, we earn or forfeit God's blessing in our daily lives by our performance. But what I come to tell you this morning is that the same gospel that has the power to save you Is the same gospel that has the power to keep you or sanctify you or make you clean or make you better, right? Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace, and your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. Thinking still of this good day, bad day scenario, the author said, That most people don't think they could be used by God on their bad days because I wouldn't be good enough. This is both a shame and guilt-filled answer as well as a pride-filled answer. Why do I say this? I'm glad you asked. It's a shame and guilt-filled answer because the awareness of sin in your life rightly makes you conscious of the fact that you have failed to meet God's holy standard as a believer. But this response is also prideful because it reveals that you've somehow come to believe that God's ability to use you on your bad day is based on your ability to keep God's law. This type of thinking is actually anti-gospel. And it's one of the very things that Jesus consistently confronted the Pharisees about. You see, the Pharisees wanted a righteousness that came from the law. But Jesus said, okay, since you want a righteousness that comes from the law, you can have it. But here's the standard. If you break any of the laws, you're guilty of all of them. Now, who can do anything with that? That paints a picture that is utterly bleak and shows us that our works and our ability to be so great is not what God is using. This is not what he's concerned with. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, writing to the church in Rome, presents to us the only known remedy for our guilt, shame, and pride. When he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Why does Paul tell us he is not ashamed of the gospel? To say that you are not ashamed of something infers or suggests that there's a reason to be ashamed. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 through 25. I'm reading from the New Living Translation because I want to make it real plain this morning. Listen to Paul's words. He says, Since God, in his wisdom, saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for a sign from heaven. And it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans. And God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Mm, Amen. Now, think about who it is that Paul is writing this letter to. He's writing to Rome. Rome was home to many of the world's greatest minds and philosophers. So surrounded by such sophistication and worldly wisdom, it would be very easy for most people to feel a sense of embarrassment when telling people that their only hope of escaping hell and being made right with God is to put your faith in a poor Jewish carpenter from Nazareth who was condemned to death on a cross. Remember that crucifixion at that time was reserved for the most horrible criminals. And Paul, writing to Rome, stands flat-footed and says, I am not ashamed to be identified with that man. I'm not ashamed to be identified with the poor Jewish carpenter from Nazareth. One commentator says this, These Christians had to be strong. The Christians of Rome were unpopular, reputed to be enemies of the human race, and credited with such vices as incest and cannibalism. Now, of course, this was their misunderstanding of the Christian faith, right? Because when you think about taking communion, drinking the cup, and eating the bread, they took that literally, that they were being cannibals, right? So, in large numbers then, they became the victims of the imperial malevolence And it is this persecution of Christians under Nero that traditionally forms the setting for Paul's martyrdom. Mm. So here's something else. Another commentator says about Rome. In particular, the city of Rome thought it knew all about power. Power is the one thing that Rome boasted of the most. Greece might have its philosophy, but Rome had its power. Despite all their power, the Romans, like all men, were powerless to make themselves righteous before God. The ancient philosopher Seneca called Rome a cesspool of iniquity. And the ancient writer Juvenal called it a filthy sewer into which the dregs of the empire flood. So imagine this. This is where Paul wants to come and preach this foolish message with all of these wise and rich and haughty people. I would here have to agree with King Solomon in Ecclesiastes when he says, there is nothing new under the sun. The climate in which Paul is unashamedly sharing the gospel is not much different than sharing the gospel in the United States here in 2023. Though we may not face martyrdom for sharing the gospel yet, we are still taking the good news to men and women who view our message as foolishness. Many look at us as if we stepped out of the Stone Age when we tell them that their only hope in this world is to put their faith in a poor Jewish carpenter who died on a cross 2,000 years ago. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. The gospel is certainly news, but it is more than information. It has inherent power. The gospel is not advice to people, suggesting that they lift themselves. It is the power. It lifts them up. Paul does not say that the gospel brings power, but that it is power and God's power at that. So when we're talking about the gospel, we're not talking about a self-help message. We're not telling you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps because you don't have boots. Right? You have nothing to stand on. So this is not about you working harder and working yourself into this fury or frenzy in order to be accepted by God. He says, the power for salvation. So what do you need to be saved from? Well, there's two things you need to be saved from. The most important is you need to be saved from God. Yes, we know that our God is a loving God. And it says that throughout the scriptures, that our God is a God of love, He's a God of mercy. All of these things are true. But at the same token, because he is holy, he's also just. Meaning God cannot and will not allow sin and lawlessness to go unpunished. Sin is utterly sinful because of who you sin against. If you sin against me, I might be able to make your life a little bit difficult. I might be able to frustrate you or hit some buttons or say some things that would hurt your feelings or whatever that might be, right? If, I, if you sin against me, it's a little bit that I can do. I might even be able to kill you, take your life, right? You could do something to someone so bad that that's what's in their heart, is that they want to take your life. But that's still nothing compared to God. The Bible in Matthew ten twenty eight says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It's God that you need to be rescued from. If you are not a believer today, if you are an unbeliever, if you have not accepted the gospel message of Jesus Christ, you're sitting in the worst place possible. You are sitting under the wrath and condemnation of God against sin. God cannot and will not allow sin to go unpunished, but God provided a way of escape in Christ Jesus. You also need saving from yourself. John 8, 34 says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Mm. So what is he saying? He's saying that anyone who has not accepted this glorious gospel that you are literally a slave to your sinful desires, your sinful urges. You don't even know why you do half the things you do, unbeliever. You don't even understand why it seems like no matter what you do, you always find yourself back in a horrible position. That's because your master before receiving Jesus, is the devil. And he don't love you. Paul goes on to say in the latter part of this verse that the gospel's power to salvation comes to everyone who believes. God will not withhold salvation from the one who believes. But believing is the only requirement. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What is he saying here? It's simple. And this is the hard part for many people. He said the only requirement to receive this free gift of freedom, of salvation, to be freed from Your own fleshly desires and your own sinful heart to be freed from the penalty of sin that is poured out against all unrighteousness is to believe in the message of the gospel. You see, that's too simple for some of us because the flesh, its natural tendency is to say it's got to be harder than that, right? The flesh goes, nah, that's too simple. Imagine this, you've spent your whole life building this resume of how good you are. Building this resume of being this great person. And all of a sudden, somebody comes along and says, your, your, your whole resume is trash. Your whole resume means absolutely nothing. You can ball it up and throw it out. It's, it's sewage. All of that stuff that you did, all of the stuff that you think makes you so good and so right with God is worthless. Mm. He says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This means that the gospel was meant to go first to ethnic and cultural Jews and then to the cultural Greek. At this time, the word Greek had lost its racial sense altogether It did not mean a native of the country of Greece. Greek was one who knew the culture and the mind of Greece. In Jewish thought, there are only two types of people. The Jews who were the first to receive God's ordinances and his plan of salvation, they are one, and then everything that's not Jew is what? Gentile, right? Either you're one of the chosen people or you're a Gentile. In Roman culture, there were only two type of people, too. In Roman culture, you were either Greek or you were what they would call a barbarian. Interesting. So either you're a cultured, hip, and educated Greek or you're a barbarian. They called non-Greeks barbarians because the language of people that weren't Greek to them sounded like bar, 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 bar. That's literally where the word came from. Barbarian. Yeah, say it with me. Bar, 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 bar. Right? (laughs) So Paul says, guess what? None of this matters. No matter what your position in the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for you. And the only requirement to receive This gift is to believe. Isn't that a glorious message? I love that God made this process simple because I'm not the brightest bulb in the light fixture. The simplicity of the gospel is actually a stumbling block to many. Why? Because as I said before, if you keep looking and holding up your own resume of your goodness and how good you do, For the gospel to come in and crush all of that and say, no, we're all equal at the foot of the cross. For some people, they don't like that because they don't want to give up all of their good works. But again, your good works, if you want to be justified by those good works, good luck. It's a whole bunch of commands and laws you got to keep in order to do that. And you got to be perfect in keeping them. And I ain't never met a perfect person in my life. So there's no way you're in a bad position. The only payment that Jesus, that God will accept is the blood of the lamb, the blood of his son, whom he sent as a propitiation for our sin, meaning a payment for our sin. Much like when we think back to the Old Testament with the children of Israel and how God told them at the Passover to slaughter the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost so the death angel would pass over them. Same thing here. When we receive Jesus Christ, we are covered in the blood of the lamb and the penalty, the wrath of God passes over you. Because when God looks down and sees you as the believer, he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Thank you. It says in verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Righteousness. William Barclay explains the meaning of this ancient Greek word, which means I justify and is the root of righteousness. All verbs in Greek, which end in always mean to treat or account or reckon a person as something. If God justifies a sinner, it does not mean that he finds reason to prove that he was right. Far from it. It does not even mean at this point that he makes the sinner a good man. It means that God treats the sinner as if he had not been a sinner at all. hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's good news. That's good news. He's rescued you. Believer, you're righteous. Not because of what you do, but because of what he's done. What he's saying is that, and what the Bible tells us, is that when we receive God's free gift of salvation, when God looks at you, he no longer sees you as an object of his wrath. But instead, when he looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus standing in your place. When you become a believer, you are covered in the blood of the lamb. And God's wrath that you deserve passes over you. Much like the death angel passed over the children of Israel. Mm. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He saith not from works to works or from works to faith, but from faith to faith, meaning only by faith. Mm. What is this saying? When we receive the message of the gospel, we are in that moment justified or declared righteous in the eyes of God. Some say justified means just as if I never sinned. After we are justified, we then start the process of being sanctified, which means from the day you were saved until the day you die, through the power of the Holy Spirit is changing you from the inside out. He's making you look more like Jesus day by day. Then one day when we die, we will be glorified, meaning that we are free from the presence of sin because we will be eternally in the presence of God where sin can no longer dwell. Amen. I look forward to that day, that great day when I am free from the presence of sin, where sin won't even be a thought. Whew. Hallelujah. That, that brings joy to my heart to think about that day. In other words, the same message that saved you is the same message that keeps you or cleanses you. So Remember, I started this sermon talking about the dilemma of sin and how do I fight and conquer the sin in my life. Don't go back to the garden and be like Adam and Eve and start putting leaves on yourself, because that's what we do, right? When we start to fail in our walk as a Christian, and we we know that, man, my my life's not quite lining up with what God has asked it to line up with, right? Right? I'm not quite walking this thing out right. Our natural tendency, our fleshly tendency is to go put fig leaves on, to go find some way to cover ourselves that we might hide, that we might hide from God. We'll cover ourselves in our good works, right? We'll cover ourselves in our nice clothes. We'll cover ourselves in our intelligence and our degrees and all of that good stuff, right? They're just fig leaves. It's nothing. You can't hide. You can't hide from God. And that's what made me remember that in order for me to live this Christian life out, it's not about me trying to put myself back under the law, which is a failure. It's about me looking to the same message that changed my life all those years ago. That same message still contains the power to give me the strength and the will and the heart and the desire to live my life for Jesus. You see, God saved us to good works, not because of good works, right? When you become a Christian, good works are a result of the change that's taking place in you because he says that all things have passed away. And all things have become new. You are a new creation, a new creature in Christ Jesus. But, you know, we have a hard time reckoning that a lot of times, right? Because we look at our mess and we go, there's no way that I'm a new creature. There's no way that, that I'm better. But I want to free your mind this morning, Christian. What I am not saying Is that God says, it's okay to just willfully go out and sin all you want because you're covered. That's not what I'm saying. Paul himself said, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? Certainly not. Of course not. I want to live this life because of what was done for me. I want to walk in righteousness and holiness even though I fail at it every day. I want to do that because of what was done on my behalf. Blood was shed for me. God sent his own son to die for me. We're getting to a close here, but for my people who like points, I didn't really do this as a point sermon. But here's some points for you. There's a few things that we can see here in these two verses. The gospel is personal, the gospel is powerful, the gospel is practical. And the gospel is persistent. The gospel is personal. Have you ever been sitting in a church? Maybe you're sitting in church today and thinking this message is just for me. Have you ever sat in church and felt that the preacher gets up and starts speaking and you're like, my wife must have talked to him before before church started? Because there's no way that he knows what's going on in my life and in my heart. No, that's the power of God. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of his spirit impressing upon your heart that this is for you. The gospel message is personal. God died for you. Yes, he died for the whole world, but specifically for you. Think about that. Take the weight of that in that he sacrificed for you and you alone, right? For everybody, but it's personal to you. Praise God for that. The gospel's powerful. I know no other message in this world that can change a man or a woman. I know no other message that can make a crack addict put down the crack pipe. I know no other message that can make the gangbanger put down his gun. I know no other message that can make a homosexual be heterosexual. I know no other message that can take a thief and turn him into a giver. I know no other message that can take a liar and turn him into a truth teller. I know no other message that can change the life of a sinner from the inside out than the message of the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Thank you, Jesus. The gospel is practical. He said it's for the Jews and the Greeks. It's for everybody. I don't care if you are poor. I don't care if you are white, Puerto Rican, Mexican, Hispanic, whatever you want to call it. I don't care what your ethnicity is. This is for you. I don't care what your social status is, if you're rich, if you're poor. This message is for you. I don't care about any of the things that we would use to describe ourselves because it's for you. The gospel is persistent, meaning God's word will stand the test of time. God's word will never come back void. God's word is still working in your life, Christian, failing Christian, sinful Christian. God's word is still powerful and effective in your life. And he will be powerful and effective in your life until you leave this place and you stand in his presence. There's no perfection that's coming here. We strive for perfection, but perfection is not going to be found here. Perfection is going to be when we are with our Father for eternity in heaven. But until that time, the same gospel that saved you is the same gospel That will keep you. In closing. The following quote here. Applies to those. Here this morning. Who have already put their faith. And trust in Jesus. The author says. Therefore. When we are smarting. Under the conviction of sin. When we realize we fail God. One more time. Perhaps even in the same sin, we must resort to the cleansing blood of Jesus. As a well-known gospel hymn from the 19th century expressed it, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It is not our contrition or sorrow for our sin. It is not our repentance. It is not even the passing of a certain number of hours during which we feel we are on some kind of probation that cleanses us. It is the blood of Christ shed once for all on Calvary 2,000 years ago, but appropriated daily or even many times a day that cleanses our conscience and gives us a renewed sense of peace with God. Amen. Christian, to you, Christian, preach the gospel over yourself daily. Preach this message over yourself daily. Stop trying to cover yourself by working harder. But instead, believe God when he says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I know sometimes it doesn't look good. But there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Stop letting the enemy convince you that you're no longer his because you failed. Guess what? You're going to fail again. And you're going to fail again. And you're going to fail again. But guess who is catching you when you fall? Woo! Jesus. That's who catches us when we fall. That's who catches me as a Christian when I fail. And I thank him for this glorious truth. Remind yourself that he saved you for good works, not because of them. Then walk out your faith from a position of victory because of what God has done through Christ Jesus on your behalf. So for my Christian, this is a message of hope for you. For my Christian who feels like you find yourself still in the same place and going through the same issues and and failing in the same way all the time, if you have truly received Jesus, if you truly have His Spirit living inside of you, you're free. Receive this hope that's in Jesus. Receive it. Believe it. The Bible tells us that we have to reckon ourselves as this. See, we're stupid and we keep forgetting. We've heard this a thousand times. I'm not preaching anything new. You can open your Bible and do what I just did. That, that, very easy. That's why the foolishness of preaching, right? I'm not doing anything special. The message is still the same. To my non-believer, to those who have not accepted Jesus Christ today, receive God's free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Your good deeds will not save you from the wrath of God that you deserve. Your mom, your dad, your aunt, your uncle, your cousins, your grandparents, they can't save you. Your mom, your dad, your money, your career, none of these things can save you. There is only one message that saves. And that message is this. Jesus Christ came and he died on a cross and took on the penalty for your sin. And he says that if you will believe, not that if you will do more, not that if you will cry harder and and work longer, that if you believe, then you shall be saved. You see... Many, many, many years ago, God created the heavens and the earth. And he placed Adam and Eve in the garden, right? And because of the sin of Adam and Eve, sin is reigning in our flesh from the moment we are born. We are slaves to sin because Adam was the representative for all of mankind, whether you like it or not. That's the way that God ordained it. He set it up that way, that Adam represented all mankind. And so because of Adam's sin, you inherited that sin. And you're a slave to it, non-believer, unbeliever. You're a slave. You got to stop trying to clean the fish up before you catch it, as they say. Right? You can't clean the fish before you catch it. You can't walk this walk. You can't talk this talk. You can't live this out without the power to do so. You can try. I advise you to try. There's many people over the years who didn't receive Jesus but lived great lives just because they believed and walked out these principles. But guess what? Those men and women who didn't truly believe in the message, they're in hell. If they've passed away, just living these principles is not enough. You have to receive the person of Jesus Christ. And so that sin entered the world, and sin deserves death, as we read earlier. The wages of sin is death, and so we get animal sacrifice in the Old Testament. And God, for a time, accepted the blood of the animals as a covering for man's sin. But that was never a worthy sacrifice. It was just something that God allowed. But here is the good news. Here is the good news. You don't have to go out to the barn and kill an animal and take it to the priest or take it to the priest and let him kill the animal. Jesus Christ is the lamb who was slain. Jesus Christ is the worthy sacrifice. I said a word earlier that we don't use much anymore. Propitiation. Jesus was the payment for your sin. And if you put your trust this morning in that risen Savior, in that Jewish carpenter who died on the cross 2,000 years ago and was risen from the grave and now sits at the right hand of the Father, If you believe this message and you confess it with your mouth and you believe it in your heart, this morning, unbeliever, you shall be saved. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for this glorious gospel that sets us free. Thank you for the keeping power of your gospel. Lord Jesus, thank you, Father that the same message that you use to change us is the same message that we need to preach over ourselves in order to remain faithful. The same message that will keep us. Lord Jesus, I just pray that your word would hit its target this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. At this time, I'm going to stand down here for a moment as we sing our song. and. I know we don't often do this, but I'm old school and I like altar calls. So I'm going to stand down here. And if anybody has heard this message this morning, was convicted by the message of the gospel. And you would like to receive Christ today. I'm going to ask you to come down to the front, talk to me, and then we'll have our deacons talk to you a little bit more and tell you the next steps in this process.